The text for Pastor John's message can be found in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Father, we seek your help now as listeners, responders, a preacher, all of us over your sacred word, the scriptures. And I ask, Father, for your help to be faithful to the meaning that you intended when you inspired these writers Let me read my own ideas into the word, but your ideas out. And may we all together through those truths see you and the risen Christ and be drawn to faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So grant that faith would be begotten this morning and strengthened. Magnify Christ now, I ask, Father, in our midst. In his name I pray. Amen. Bethlehem has not built any educational space for almost 50 years. If you don't count the nurseries downstairs here. What makes that fact Remarkable to me is that 20 years ago, when I came, 21 now almost, there were about 300 here on Sunday morning, and almost all of it was uh, gray hair. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And uh, there were eight teenagers, I think, in the youth group, and I don't know if there's anybody in the nursery. I don't know if we had one. I suppose we did for visitors. And now uh, there are there will be about twenty three, twenty four hundred of you this morning in the three services, and and there are two hundred and thirty teenagers that meet, and there are eight hundred and fifty children, and we haven't built anything for fifty years. This room we built and moved in here in nineteen ninety one. We began the last decade of the last century of the second millennium with a building for exaltation. That's why it's shaped the way it is. And our 
desire and plan and we believe call of God is to build at the beginning of the first decade of the first century of the third millennium a building for education. Not as an end in itself, but for more exaltation. It's a theological rationale for saying education for exaltation. The reason God created the universe was that he might be exalted in by his creatures. And the reason we educate is to acquaint people with their purpose for being exaltation. This reality of growth mingles with a passion to train a certain kind of child. That is, to produce a certain kind of child. And a certain kind of teenager. And a certain kind of adult, married or single. And at the heart of that is a deeply rooted handling of the Word of God so that the life is shaped a certain way of radical commitment to the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. We have a vision of the kind of little people we want to grow up into the kind of radical, risk-taking, loving, gospel-spreading, Christ-exalting, God-centered human beings that shape and change culture and world and honor God. We, we think we know the kind of people the Bible calls us to live for. And we're just struggling with where and how to do it given the constraints of these numbers. So this message is to acquaint you, number one, with the meaning of education for exaltation in regard to building, second, in regard to funding, third, in regard to process, and fourth, in regard to Jesus Christ and the law. Number one, what's the meaning of education for exaltation in regard to buildings? The elders recommended, and you approved over a year ago now, that the old sanctuary building that looks like a Spanish fort on the corner, that way, come down and in its place go up a four-story educational building. And beside it on the parking lot right over there where no building is, encroaching 40 feet or so, uh, a multi-purpose room, a gym, a dining facility. It is all one room, just one big room. Use it for dining during conferences, gym, um, community room and uh, supplementary worship space. In fact, the vision of growing without growing, which you've heard about, is what shapes some of the vision for that other building, namely that our aim here is not to build a bigger sanctuary or to multiply services indefinitely. This going to three services was not planned and it is not ideal. The stresses it creates, given the way we do things here, the way I preach, the way we want to worship, the way we want to linger, the way we want to pray between services, this is not ideal. I mean, some churches have seven, eight of these. I was talking to one pastor the other day, and, and every strategy is different, and God has his own way for every church. But I tell you, I could not do 23-minute sermons. I would rather go back to Cameroon and do an hour and 15 minutes, 19 times in eight days, than to do a 23-minute sermon. I don't believe I'm designed to preach 23-minute sermons. I'm designed to preach 
45-minute sermons, which I squeeze into 35 minutes if I can. Well, anyway, there are a lot of reasons why multiplying services is not a popular idea around here, and that's part of it. That's not the plan. The plan is for there to be four, five, six hundred people in that incubator, we call it, worshiping with its own pastor, building its own staff, developing its own philosophy of ministry, using our Sunday school uh, in the meantime, and then becoming its own church and leaving five, six hundred people strong over and over again. That's the vision. Plant a, a big, flourishing, independent church somewhere through that incubator and, and stay at about 2,500 in this location. That's growing without growing. Growing because you keep winning people to Jesus and you keep drawing them into the vision and then not growing by saying it's just all got to happen on this campus or in this structure. And some of that has already happened, but... Way more has to happen. That's the building. What about the funding? They say $9 million is what those two buildings will cost. We are debt-free. This building was paid for in 1996, five or six years after we came into it. We have no debt as a church. And when we tasted debt-free existence after a long period of debt, the elders felt, and I believe the people resonated with the fact this is sweet and we don't want to be in debt again. We could be in that building today. That thing could be up today. Had we decided to be $7 million in debt. Because you would have given $2 million up front and we would have borrowed seven and we would have built them. And we would say, Ray, and then we'd look at the $7 million debt, bleeding. And we we would be happy and not happy. There, there's just two different ways. We did that, and the elders never said that's wrong or sin to do. We never said that, and we don't believe that. We just said, at this juncture in our church's history, given our track record, who we are, way we believe God is calling us to do it, we don't think we want to do it that way. We want to get it up front. So the crazy idea is that we would pledge money and nobody would be asked to give anything until the pledges totaled the total amount. So that when any person dug deep to pay their pledge, they would know this thing is going up in a year. Rather than maybe 10 years from now and here I'm giving all this stuff and I don't know if I'll ever see it. We don't want any money. Although some of you keep giving, we have $2 million in the bank right now, so thank you, but that's not the plan. The plan is just pledges, and when the pledges equal the total amount of the project, we pull the string, it comes in two years. Half of it up front before the thing goes up, and the other half when we move in. That's the plan. It's crazy. We called it the Gideon Venture. 300 against 120,000. Takes a work of God for 300 soldiers to defeat 120,000 Midianites. And they did. Blow the trumpet, break the jars. That's a stupid way to win a battle, right? Let's be stupid. Let's be stupid for a change. Let's try to fail at something. So we did try. And we have succeeded so far. $6.55 million you've pledged. That is incredible. Our financial conservatives were saying $4 million is off the charts for this church. And we're talking three years. That was a three-year pledge thing. And we're saying, how about nine in two years? 
That's the Gideon venture. And this morning is the second goal of that project. The first one was October. We didn't make it. And today we're at 6.5 plus and uh, we're not there. And I don't know what's going to happen today. That's why I'm talking about this. This is the goal. And that's the funding plan. So this morning, after praying, I walked into the bedroom at 6.45, uh, ready to come over here and uh, pulled out my little renewed sheet. And uh, Noel's still in bed, but awake. And I say, okay, I've got a number. How about if we add this much? I'm not going to tell you what it is. This much to our pledge that we already made. Now, my wife is great. She, uh, there was this creepy crawler about six inches long coming across the bedroom floor in Cameroon a few days ago. Uh, we got a picture of it, so you can verify that it's six inches long. And she's sitting there, and I say, you probably don't want to look down right now. So she looked down. That's the way the law, that's the way the law functions. So she looked down. And you know what she did? This thing's about six inches long, about a quarter inch thick, with a thousand legs underneath, just kind of undulating along the floor. And she ran and got a shoe and put it beside this thing and took a picture. <laughs> so you could believe how big it is. You know, the shoe is this long, and here's this six-inch snake-like worm. So that's the kind of wife I've got. She's great. And so she said, as she lay there in bed this morning, whatever you think. I said, no, I thought that I know Barnabas is going to Wheaton this fall. And for three years, it's going to cost $23,000 a year. I know that. But I know one other thing. We just spent 10 days in Africa. And we're rich. We are rich. Just perspective. I took Abraham, Barnabas, Talitha, Noel, and me to Olive Garden to celebrate reunion after we got back Thursday. And I spent two years' tuition on that meal at Cameroon Baptist Theological Seminary. We're rich. So, I hope others of you are taking your cards. And if you didn't pledge anything the first time, we'll pray. Say, how am I going to keep a cap on my wealth? How am I going to acquaint myself with the dangers of being rich if I don't do some extraordinary things? Like sign off on... A number that's out of reach. Pray like crazy and believe that God will do a thing. Number three, what's the process? Very simple. On the 7th of May, all the news of renewed pledges or whatever having come in today, I'll call you next Sunday to fast the following Monday with us. You did that once before, and God really met us in a very remarkable way. And the elders will look at the money that's come in, or the pledges, and we will seek the face of the Lord, and we will bring to you our recommendation as to where we go from here.
That's what we'll do. And I don't know what will happen there. There's no plan except to wait. And if that changes, then we will let you know. And if anything significant in the funding or the building changes, you'll vote on it. It's your money. We know we have to have you with us. We're not going to do anything without uh, winning your uh, excited affirmation. We know you have pledged to a particular cause, a particular building, a particular vision. If any of that changes, you vote again. Okay, that's the process. We'll let you know in a couple weeks. Now, lastly and most importantly, I'm going to go to the text. And I'm going to ask this fourth question. What's the meaning of education for exaltation as it relates to Jesus Christ and the law of God? Now, I'll just put in a nutshell where I'm going to go here in the last ten minutes or so. I'm going to go to this. Education for the purposes of a life of exaltation in God is an education on how to mainly handle the word of God, the law of God, the gospel of God in a way that makes Jesus Christ central and exalts him as supreme in all things for the joy of all peoples. How do you handle the Bible and life and American culture so that Christ remains absolutely supreme in your life? And the life of the church, life of the family, and in all of your vocational efforts. That's what we're about in education for exaltation. The centrality and supremacy and glory of Jesus. All right. Verse 7 of our text. Romans 7, 7 has Paul defending the law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Answer, may it never be. And the reason he's defending the law and raising the question is because he has said some things that have caused people to think the law is sin. What had he said? Let me sum it up. I think he said something like this. If we make the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and the others surrounding it, if we make the law the primary decisive means of justification or sanctification, it will have exactly the opposite effect in our lives. I think that's what he had said. It won't justify, it will condemn. It won't sanctify, it will multiply sin. The first point is made by chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you try to make the law the agent or the means or the instrument of your getting right with God, it will simply expose your hopeless sinfulness and it won't happen. It is not the primary or decisive agent in getting right with God. Justification. Secondly, neither is it of sanctification the primary or decisive instrument. Romans 7, 8. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Taking opportunity in the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The law 
is prostituted by sin over and over again. It is taken and becomes complicitous in defeating its own demands in my life. And therefore, it is not the primary agent of sanctification or justification. It reveals sin and stirs up more sin. So, if you want to get right with God and you want to bear fruit for God, that is, you want to be justified and you want to be sanctified, the point of Romans so far is you've got to, you've got to pursue this on a totally different footing than law-keeping. Law-keeping will not work for justification, and law-keeping will not work for sanctification. So what is the alternative? Let's go to verse 4 and verse 6 of chapter 7 of Romans, and hear Paul describe the shocking truth that we must die to the good and holy and just law of God and somehow bear fruit another way. What is it? Let's read verse 4. Therefore, brethren, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, as Jesus, in order that... You might bear fruit for God. Do you see how radically different the footing is for bearing fruit for God than law keeping in this verse? Die to the law. Why? So that you may be Joined, and the context is the image of marriage in verses 1 to 3, united, married, to not an idea, and not a doctrine, and not a dead person, and a memory, but him who was raised. The point of saying it that way is he's alive. He's in this room right now. A living person. Jesus of Nazareth. Bodily, he's in heaven at God's right hand by his spirit. He's in this room listening to be preached right now as near as your seat to you. And it says, die to the law as a way of bearing fruit for God so that you might be joined to a living person vitally, spiritually, relationally experientially, that you may bear fruit for God. There's only one way forward in sanctification, a relationship with a living person having died to the lists and rules by which you are trying to constantly commend yourself to God. It's the only way. Let's see how he says it in verse 6. He says the same thing, but his words are different and they shed light on each other. Verse 6, now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve 
This is the same as bearing fruit in verse 4. So that we might serve in newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Whose spirit? The spirit of the risen Christ. Somebody will say, and they should, what's new about that? What's new about the spirit? What's new about the work of the spirit? Didn't the Old Testament saints have the spirit? Did Caleb and Joshua have a different Courage and trust in God because their flesh produced that? Their fallen, corrupt, dead nature produced trust that God would give us the land when the ten other spies said, we can't do it, we can't do it, the giants. That wasn't from them. The Spirit did that. The Spirit broke David's heart when Nathan said, you're the man. The Spirit broke his heart. And he cried out, oh, Spirit, don't leave me. Restore to me. Renew me. The Spirit was there in the Old Testament. He was converting people. He was sanctifying people. So what's new? What's this newness of verse 6? The newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. And the answer is, they didn't know the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. They did not know the Spirit as the Spirit of the incarnate God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, a substitutionary death, being raised bodily from the dead and reigning in heaven today and coming in glory. They didn't know any of that about the Spirit. The Spirit that sanctifies today is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the new thing is that the Word of God and the Spirit all reveal Christ. And it's our relationship with Christ in and through the Spirit of Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory into the image of Christ to another degree of glory. How in the world is sanctification and justification to be pursued Paul says, first, by faith alone, and then he says, in the newness of the Spirit. Die to the law for justification, die to the law for sanctification. And in the place of the law, put Jesus. Jesus providing the foundation for your justification. Jesus providing the focus and foundation for your sanctification. Jesus as a substitute and righteousness. An atoning death for me to be accepted with God in the first place. And Jesus, my treasure, my all, satisfy my heart. And that's releasing me for a life of service and fruit bearing. Jesus becomes the foundation of justification. He becomes the focus of sanctification. All about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The reason the law cannot do any of that is because had it done that, Jesus would have died in vain. Galatians 2.21 If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The law had not Jesus at its Explicit center. It pointed toward Jesus. 
And God wills that His Son be the center and ground and focus and enablement of all justification and all sanctification. And therefore, the law could not fulfill that role because it would have dishonored the center of history, Jesus Christ. It was all meant to center on and terminate on and glorify the Son of God, incarnate, crucified, risen, reigning. Today and then, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we read this amazing statement in Galatians 3.21. If a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. No, it wasn't given for that. So verse 22 says, But the scripture which has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise of righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. When? When faith comes, when the incarnation happens, when the Son shows up so that He can be magnified in the gospel. Up until the appearance of Jesus Christ in history, salvation could not center on Jesus Christ. And God means for all salvation to center on Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything by way of revelation before the appearance of Jesus Christ was preparatory, pointing, tutor-like, saying, He's coming, He's coming, something's coming, He's coming, this is not it, this is not it. And if you try to make the law the agent by which you get right with God, you will belittle Jesus Christ, your righteousness and your substitutionary condemnation. You belittle him and put yourself precisely where he belongs. It was all waiting, waiting, pointing. So die to it and be joined to another. To him who is raised from the dead. And you will be justified by faith. And you will be sanctified by faith. Let me close by giving you a verse where you can get all of that. Two verses. Second Corinthians chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. Are to me. Just about the most. Important, helpful verses if you ask the question, all right, I'm starting to hear that law and law keeping are not the decisive means by which I get right with God or become like Jesus. Neither justification nor sanctification has the law as the stuff that you primarily use to get it done. Well, what's the alternative, Paul? I mean, you are wired to be a list law-keeping person. That's the way we rear our kids. We have to use it. But oh, if we don't teach them more and deeper, they'll be wired this way too. Well, how do you get unwired? Let me read it with you. Now, before I read it, let me point out a relationship between verse 4 and 6 of Romans 7. Verse 4 said, you want to bear fruit for God? Die to the law and be joined to the living Christ. Verse 6 says, you want to serve God? 
Serve not in the oldness of letter. You've died to that. Serve in the newness of the spirit. Now put those two together. Bear fruit by being united to the risen Christ. Serve in newness of the spirit. What's the connection here between the risen Lord and the spirit? My answer, now we know he is the spirit of Jesus. Let's read it. Second Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit. Can't get much clearer. Hakurios topnuma estim. The verb is there. The nouns are there. The articles are there. This is not a hard piece of translation. Six weeks of Greek and you got this sentence. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. From what? The law. But, okay, I'm freed from it, I'm dead to it. The Spirit is here, He's Christ. I'm looking to Him, He's foundation, He's focus. Now what? What's the alternative way of becoming holy? What's the alternative way of being sanctified? What's the alternative way of not becoming licentious and lawless? If I've died to the law, do I just live like the devil? Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, There it is. That's your alternative, folks. You can either go to the law and make your list and try to perform for God as the way to get right and become holy. Or you can look in the mirror of the gospel described in chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, and see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And seeing it, what happens? Let's read. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's the new footing. You ask me, what are you going to put in the place of the law? How are you going to get people changed in this church? How are you going to become the kind of people who love each other, who sacrifice for each other, who keep us together, who, who make for unity and not splintering? Where will the resources come from to have all the old junk of our lives triumphed over and new possibilities for marriages and new possibilities for parenting and new possibilities for factions? being kept together in love and harmony, where's it coming from if it's not the law and the lists and the thou shalts? Answer, do you see him? Do you see him? When you open your Bibles in the morning, what are you looking for? Doctrines? Memory passages? Ideas, thoughts, weapons of argument. I'm looking for Jesus. 
I'm looking for Jesus. The image of the invisible God in the face of Jesus. The veil lifted. One person can lift the veil. The bridegroom. I know dads do it in weddings. But in this veil, when I'm looking through this veil and I'm seeing these blank marks on a page, and somebody tells me, you got to get beyond the marks. you got to get beyond the lists. you got to get beyond the law. you got to get beyond the letter written on stone. How are you going to get beyond it when the veil is hanging there? Answer. Jesus is the veil lifter. So I've got three things. He's the foundation of justification. He's the focus of sanctification. And he's the veil lifter that enables me to see the foundation and to see the focus. Why? Because it's the purpose of God that his son, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, be the explicit foundation and focus and enabler of all justification and all sanctification. And to that end, we die to the law and we are united to him who was raised from the dead and serve in newness of the spirit, namely the spirit of Jesus. That's what's new. That's what's new. So I close with this warning and promise. If what I have just said is not what makes you tick, if if Jesus for you is not foundation of your justification and foundation of your sanctification and focus of your faith and the treasure of your life and the enabler of your seeing Him and loving Him, if He's not that for you, I don't want a penny of your money. That's the warning. Neither does he keep your money and fall on your face and meet him. Meet him. Then maybe money can find its proper place in your life. Here's my promise. I'm 55. I would like to die at Bethlehem. I won't preach until I die. I promise I won't preach unless I drop dead in the pulpit. That would be fine. But But I don't plan to, you know, get old and senile and y'all go home. No. He said avoid again. (laughs) Poor guy. I won't be here that long, but the point is this. I do plan on ten more years, God willing, and I promise, and I speak for the staff, and I speak for 17 elders, We will, with all our might, that Christ mightily inspires within us, make every effort to be worthy of your trust and worthy of your children. Let's pray. Father, we want Christ in this church to be everything to us. The law was all about Jesus getting us ready, pointing us forward. The gospel is all about Jesus. Sanctification is all about being transformed in the image of the Lord that we look at every day in the Bible. 
Justification is all about the righteousness of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the substitutionary condemnation of Jesus. That those who simply believe might be freed completely from all their guilt and all their sin and all their fears. It's all about Jesus. And so I ask, Father and Holy Spirit, that you would magnify Jesus in the life of this church, in the giving of this church, daily, weekly, and for this special project. Lord, just do what you count best for us in regard to education for exaltation in these next closing weeks of the, of the campaign. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And now may the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the body be on and and with us all. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.